if you need one, we're going to be needing it today. Um, that what's interesting about how Jesus closes this sermon off is very different than oftentimes the way many modern preachers and teachers will kind of conclude a sermon, which I was kind of thinking about this. I had written some bullet points, just uh, what Jesus does not do. What Jesus does not do, he doesn't finish his sermon with an altar call. He doesn't finish his sermon with a song from Chris Tomlin. What he does do, interestingly enough, is was with a series of warnings is that, again, this is, this is unique, and in some ways, it may be a little bit off-putting for some of us, and I'll, I just want to kind of put this little bit of a, a warning on the message today, because um, it may come across as somewhat heavy, because I think for the most part, in our modern, maybe overly triumphant uh, mentality or happy, clappy type church atmosphere, uh, personalities that we oftentimes try to cultivate, many churches today try to create an environment that's all about happiness and joy and whatnot, and there's nothing wrong with that, that's fine, but there are occasions where uh, there are more weightier subject matter that gets covered, and this is one of those moments where Jesus ends the message, not with kind of a happy, clappy, like upbeat theme or idea, it's more of a weighty idea, concept to really pause and reflect and consider, and what Jesus uh, appears to be doing is he recognizes that he is in line with the ancient Um, practice of prophetic teaching. So for example, throughout the Bible, you have prophets, people that come along, and they would deliver God's word, and at the end of their message, they would basically say something along the lines of, hey, here's what God has spoken. So if you obey what God has spoken, then this will be the life of blessing or God's benevolence that will come upon you or that you will continue to uh, discover and to enjoy. But if you choose to go in your own path, if you choose your own way, if you choose a way that's out of sync or out of line with what has just been conveyed with regard to the heart of God, then you will incur or bring upon yourself brokenness and destruction and ruin. Um, You can read that as a warning, and it's exactly what it is. It's a warning. And so what I want to suggest to us as we read the message that Jesus is going to say today, I want you to think about, again, in terms of we are approaching a document um, that is from another culture, from another time, And so for us to approach it with criticism or judgmentalism because it does not sync with our modern-day sensibilities, it does does not honor the text. So my hope would be that we would honor the text, honor the God behind the text, the God-breathedness of the text, and let the text do for us what the text is intended to do, which I think is to jolt us, to cause us to realize there is a soberness that Jesus wants for us to think about, to consider the words that he has just finished preaching for the past three chapters. So hopefully with that being said, why don't we all read the passage? And if you guys want, why don't we all stand up and we will read uh, from Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 23. And then I'll pray and then we'll begin to just kind of unpack this and try to make sense of this um, message here this morning. Jesus starts, verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, 
Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to you and them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of God. Jesus, we ask you now that you would help our understanding to be expanded. God, we ask you that even as we begin to try to understand what you have to say, that we wouldn't harden our hearts, that we would come to you with open hearts and allow you to inform our understanding of who you are and let you speak, let you reshape us. So we commit this time in your hands and we invite you, Holy Spirit, to move and work in our midst. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all grab a seat. And uh, I want to jump right in. So the key word that I really want to focus on that kind of leads into the remainder of everything that Jesus is about to unpack is just one simple word that some of your translations might have different ways to identify this. But it's the word that in my translation is be, beware, be aware. Um, does anybody have any other be mindful or any other ways in which that's translated in your version? version? Watch out. There you go. Um, anybody else? No, nobody else. That's kind of the gamut right there. Um, whenever you read passages that have different English translations like that, um, that should be an indicator to you right away that maybe the actual Greek word or the Greek words that are used there don't have a direct word-for-word, one-for-one translation into our English text, which means that there's a variance, which should cause you to want to understand a little bit about what does that word mean. So I thought I'd kind of geek out for the next two minutes with you, just understand a little bit the idea of this word beware before we jump in so that we can kind of have a little bit of a definition to work on before we move into what are we to be aware of. Because obviously, Jesus wants us to be mindful of something, to be aware of something. But what what does it mean to to be aware or be mindful in the first place? So here's a couple different ways in which this word is translated. It's the word uh, prosecco. Um, comes from two words, pro and then echo. The idea is, as unpacked here, to bring to, bring near, uh, uses this analogy of to bring a ship to land, or think of it as out in the open water, being brought into kind of a harbor that it's safe, it's protected from um, the destructive you know, agents of wind and whatnot. Um, and then to turn one's mind to, or to attend, or be attentive to, Another way to think of it is to attend to one's self, to give attention to, to take heed. These are all different ways in which this particular word, beware, comes across. So again, um, the word, the phrase, beware, be aware, where does that resonate in your mind? For many of us, it comes across as with you know, sirens, something you know, red flashing neon lights saying, be aware, or maybe even the flashing red light on your dashboard of your car um, and, and it can mean that, but it's not necessarily to that extreme, but the idea is to, to pay attention, to bring into your awareness, to bring into your understanding something. And what Jesus is about to do is to tell us something to be aware of. And then he's going to begin to unpack for us at least three things, which we'll, we'll give our attention to, that I think he wants us to at least be aware of. So with that, First of all, he tells us to be aware. I'll just kind of go through these and we'll go back and circle back and go through each one. He wants us to be aware of deceivers and false prophets. I'll unpack that in a moment. Secondly, he wants us to be aware of how to identify them. What are the things that we can look for and be aware of to be able to identify false prophets? Um, and then thirdly, he wants us to be aware of a judgment to come because that's what he describes. In that day, something will happen. So with that being said, let's try to unpack this a little bit. So he's describing... Um, deceivers, 
on the one hand, and those that are deceived. Um, so on the one hand, those that have this intentionality of maybe willfully uh, perverting or twisting or deviating from whatever it is that God or through Jesus has to say to create something different or distinct. Uh, and then in contrast to people that have been deceived, people that maybe have believed or followed false ideologies, false notions, false concepts that lead one astray. So with that being said, let's jump in and try to understand this. So again, like I said, just dealing with the elephant in the room. This is not one of those happy, clappy endings to a sermon that we typically identify with, um, but it is intended to create a sense of sobriety. That whatever Jesus wants us to understand, uh, it's, it's enough to the point where he says, I care about you enough, because these are real, live, living threats that do exist, and for me to not say anything about them would me not being uh, loving. Um, now, again, we don't have a problem with this, especially when it comes in the package of a parent. So a parent warns their child of various threats and dangers and says, don't you know, lick, don't stick your finger in an you know, electric outlet, and don't you know, lick a hot iron, and don't you know, drink something just because it's colorful that comes out of the cleaning closet. Um, because... Not because the parent hates the child, but actually the quite opposite. The parent absolutely loves the child. And the parent desires for that child's life to flourish. So the key idea behind it is flourishing. Mom and dad wants child to flourish, and so therefore they post these warnings. Uh, very similar. Jesus wants his people to flourish, but he also recognizes there are deviations from the message that he's just communicated, again, beginning in chapter 5, all the way through to where we're at right now, ways that deviate from the message that he's communicating. And he says to follow those paths will actually not lead to more life, but will actually lead to a deep brokenness. So be aware of these things, is what he's saying. So number one, let's jump in and take a look at, he says to be aware of deceivers or false prophets. Um, the actual word that's used there, beware of false prophets. The Greek word there is pseudo-prophetess. Uh, so you get the word prophet and then pseudo, which means fake or false. So false prophet. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. So the question has been asked, like, who is he talking about? Is he referring to Pharisees or scribes or the Essenes? Um, and that's the interesting thing. Is he, we don't know. We don't know exactly who Jesus is talking about because he does not come right out, at least in this particular context, and label them. He just says, beware of false prophets. Whoever they are, they come looking like they're sheep, but in reality... It's just a costume, right? They are a wolf dressed in sheep's clothing. That's the idea that Jesus is saying. Again, the metaphor. Don't, don't miss the metaphor for the caricature, right? Don't get this cartoon picture in your mind uh, that kind of detracts from the reality. What he wants us to be aware of is that there are those that may come uh, with some degree of, I don't know, ability or ability to speak, they are charismatic, they have the ability to hold a crowd or an audience whatnot, they're very gifted as a communicator, but he says, actually, their intentions are dubious. Their intentions are not for your flourishing, their intentions are not so that you would thrive and become more like Jesus, but they have other intentions, other uh, ulterior motives. So he says, beware of these guys. So later on, we see that Jesus would actually go on to say, next slide, where he gives other elaborations upon this. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 through 11, it's kind of a larger section. Of, there's only a little small passage available right here. It says that Jesus answered him. He says, see that no one leads you astray. 
For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, and I will lead many astray, and they, they will lead many astray. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. So again, we begin to understand a little bit of what happens if you follow somebody that is not connected to Jesus or is not rightly reflecting the heart of God. He says what will happen is will lead you astray. You'll drift. Drift will be the inevitable outcome. Next slide, we see that also Peter, I believe, uh, who is one of Jesus' followers, one of the apostles, he writes similar language, obviously from Jesus. He says, false prophets, same word, pseudo-prophetess. Uh, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring destructive teaching, even denying the master who bought them. Obviously, clear reference to Jesus. He says, bringing upon themselves destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And lastly, then I'll make some comments, and we'll kind of go on to the next one. Uh, Paul also writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses uh, 14 to 15. He says, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So this uh, identification of Satan, again, for many of us, we're you know, wondering in the storyline where Paul's drawing from. If you go back to the first three pages of the Bible, again, like I mentioned this last week, if you ever get lost in the narrative, one of the best things to do is just go back to pages one through three of the Bible and re uh, align yourself into the larger, broader narrative of what's happening here. And what we see in page three of the Bible is we're introduced to this serpent. We have no idea where he comes from. We're just basically told that he's there. And I'm not even really sure if it's a he, so I probably shouldn't be using that pronoun. But the idea is, is that whatever it is, this serpent is there. The intention is to deceive. And this is exactly what the serpent does. Is, Did God really say? So he questions uh, what God really said, what God really meant. Did God really mean that? Did God really even say that? And the intention was to get Adam and Eve to drift, which is exactly what happened. So what he's describing here is that even Satan, who's identified as a serpent, even Satan, he is the father in other passages of lies. His intention is not to bring to flourishing your lives. His intention is to deceive. How does he trick? How does he deceive? Through subtlety. I mean, this is the interesting thing. Satan never shows up in, you know, like a red jumpsuit and a pitchfork and a big, long, you know, tail. Like, he shows up as he describes it. He's an angel of light. He, he looks good. He's charismatic. However he shows up, he looks attractive. His words look progressive. His words look like they are alluring to us. And so that's the big idea here. He shows up as an angel of light. And then he says they disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So what Paul is kind of alluding to is that just as Satan, or this serpent of old, his aim, his intention was to deceive, there are those that are kind of like that. Even Jesus describes, he says, you are of your father, the devil, like dot, 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 the devil. So the big idea is that Jesus kind of drops the mic on them. He's like, look, you guys, the way that you are deceiving others is very reminiscent of your father, like like father, Satan, like, like son. You're acting like your father. Not like your father that is the father of Abraham, but the father that deceives. So here's the big question that I think is important for us to ask. Because a prophet in the Old Testament, Jesus is no doubt linking this larger storyline to this lineage of the prophet. So what, what is a prophet? A prophet was somebody, a lot of times when we think of a prophet, we tend to think of somebody that foretells the future. So when we think of somebody, maybe a modern terminology, like, oh, they're a prophet. Well, they predicted, I don't know, um, you know, an earthquake. Like, oh my gosh, I think that there's going to be an earthquake in California. 
And sure enough, like in the next six months, an earthquake happens. See, I'm a prophet. Like, and that, I, and it's supposed to be a joke because we always have earthquakes in California. But the point of the matter is, is, that, is that the idea of a prophet is not just simply somebody that foretells the future. But the Old Testament usage of a prophet is somebody that speaks on behalf of God. That's the idea. So in some cases, they can be foretelling the future because does God know the future? Like, that's the big question. Of course he does. So God can sometimes pull back the veil and show, hey, here's what's going to happen. And so that's why sometimes that could happen. But the idea is that a prophet is somebody that comes on the scene and says, hey, here's what God thinks. Here's what God says. Here's what God is all about. And then they begin to fill in the blank. So in a modern-day context, who are prophets? Well, gosh, I think the, you know, the profile of prophet can become pretty far and wide because anybody that you know, starts a blog or a podcast or drops a tweet and says, this is what the scripture says, or this is what God meant, that's somebody taking upon themselves some action to say, I'm going to speak on behalf of God. And in some ways, that could be all of us in this room. Because anytime we open our mouth and we say, I don't think God didn't mean that. God meant this. And surely God can't be saying this or suggesting that or whatever. Then we begin to speak on behalf of God. And at some point, what would be a good posture for us to take is to step back a little bit and ask, if I'm speaking on behalf of God, if I'm dropping a tweet on behalf of God, if I'm somehow pulling back the veil or telling somebody, well, I think this is what God says, then you got to ask yourself at some point, is this rightly representing the heart of God or is this just nothing more than representing my own special interests of how I think things should be? So let me give you an example of this. So we can be people that when we hear ideas like this, when Jesus drops warnings like this, we can either hear stuff like this and either um, adopt a posture that Jesus is all about warnings, we also should all be about warnings. So what happens, and what has happened, I think, in some segments of the Christian church, you have people that kind of take upon themselves this posture of, my job description now is I'm self-proclaimed heresy hunter. Like, that's my job. I just seek out bad people that I can call out and drop the mic on and somehow bring attention to them and make them look like the heretics that they really are. So you have people within a church that kind of go that route, and all they're simply doing all the time is looking for everything that's wrong from every Christian leader because they have this deeply rooted suspicion that everybody somehow is flawed. And guess what? They're not. That's not a good posture because it's not the posture that we're called to. The other posture is to see stuff like that and to recoil from that and to be like, no, Jesus is all loving. He never really bothers about that type of stuff. But then that's, that's a wrong posture as well, because apparently Jesus actually does care about false ideologies. He does care about these things. So what would be a better posture? I think a better posture would be to allow the passage of the Scripture in moments like this to just grip us, hit us, and then begin to somehow work through them, navigate them, realize, on the one hand, I think there are extremes that we can take on both ends. One, where we take up this posture of over-focus upon everything that can be wrong in somebody's life or within, wrong within the church. Or this other undervaluing reality that there is things that need to be brought attention to. But the point that I'd make is this, coming back to all of this, is Jesus wants us to be aware of the fact that there are ways in which we can be deceived. Now, there are those that may be deceiving. So if anything, for us to look at this and just say, I need to be careful, adopt a different posture, 
So I feel this all the time on, on a personal level. Like for me, I have been preaching here in this church for almost 25 years. Anytime I have a unique opportunity uh, to preach, to teach, to share the Bible, or to post something on Facebook, or whatever the case is, I'm always struck with the reality of asking myself the question, am I rightly reflecting God in this? Or is this just my opinion? And if it is just my opinion, that's fine. Just make sure that you completely communicate that. And you know, again, there's times where I'll say, this is my opinion on this passage. I'm not confident that this is the proper interpretation. But the point of the matter is, we don't want to misrepresent whatever it is that Jesus is saying. And I'll even just say this as a caveat again, is that don't ever just take my word for it. Right, As a person that I, I care about Scripture, I care about Jesus, I care about what God is up to in this world, I don't always get it right. There are ways and things that I am short-sighted. I don't always see things perfectly. And again, if there are things that I don't see rightly, I want to be able to correct and deal with that. So this is not just simply someone that makes mistakes. This is somebody that may have a callousness about the mistakes they make because they have an agenda which they're trying to pawn. And this is really what seems to be that Jesus is drawing attention to. He says, be careful, be aware. Pay special note that there will be those that will come and have an ulterior motive that will take you far away from my heart. So that's the first thing that he wants us to be aware of. Um, Later on, we go on to see that Jesus wants us to be aware of how to identify these false prophets. And it's pretty simple. I'll just read it to you again, then we'll kind of come back, backtrack, and take a look at some ideas. Jesus goes on to say, uh, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, and every diseased tree bears bad fruit, and every healthy tree cannot bear good fruit or bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear f- good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Uh, thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. So that's the main idea that Jesus is really trying to convey, is that the big idea is you will recognize them by their fruit. Later on, Jesus would say in John chapter 15, different gospel, he says this, uh, is a different gospel account. He says, uh, this, in this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. So Jesus uses the language of fruit in this context, what he's talking about. He says, basically, good fruit is seen through obedience, like obeying everything that God has to say. Is that consistent with what Jesus is saying here? Totally. It's exactly what Jesus is saying. Because he's saying, look, I just preached you know, three chapters of content, of information. Love your neighbor. Look, don't look lustfully at, a, at, a, at someone else that's not your spouse. Uh, get rid of anger that's harboring in your heart. Learn how to forgive other people. And Jesus then finishes with this whole statement. Like, like if you receive the words that I'm saying, which means you abide by that, then you will flourish. If you disregard that, meaning if you continue to harbor vice and anger and vengeance in your heart, if you continue to uh, nurture and cultivate lustful activity in your mind and in your heart, and if you continue to hate and despise your enemies and your neighbor and so on and so forth, then Jesus says, then you will give place to powers that are not in any way consistent with his kingdom that's alive, that's bursting forth in this world. And that's what he's basically saying. So, again, as we go back to this, he says, here's how you identify them. You, you look at fruit. Now, again, this is one of those interesting things. How do you truly identify someone's fruit? Uh, how long does it take? I mean, I think these are some practical questions. Um, how much information do you have to have? Can you judge an entire person's life based upon a 160-character tweet and somehow determine that they are a heretic of the worst kind consigned to hell because of one tweet? Of course you can't. 
It takes time to observe and to watch someone's life, to be careful, to be attentive. But one other thing I think is important to note is that Jesus is not calling us to simply become people that are constantly going around observing other people's like fruitfulness. What, what he is saying is that, look, one of the ways for you to identify this is to pay attention to the fruit. He's not calling a certain special group of people to go around. Now, your sole job is to go watch, scrutinize every other human being that claims to be a Christian to determine whether or not they are truly one of us. That's not, that's not our job. What's actually interesting here is not only what Jesus tells us to do, to be fruit inspectors, but what he doesn't tell us to do. This kind of struck me as I was reading through this, is that what Jesus does not tell us, look, if you find a false prophet who will lead you astray, burn him at the stake. Set him on fire. Behead them. None of these things are things that Jesus says. I, I, honestly, I found this really fascinating to me. Here's, here's why. Maybe it's, I'm, I'm weird, but here's, here's why I find this fascinating. What Jesus is doing is he is a king launching a brand new kingdom movement. That is fascinating. And apparently the way that this king deals with pseudo-prophets is not to burn them at the stake. It's not to somehow create mob rule and burn the witch. That's not what's in the heart of this king. So you have to ask, how in the world has the church gotten it wrong throughout the ages then, from time to time, when witches have been burned at stakes, or when people get into mob rule, or somehow, what has happened is that Jesus is a king launching a new kingdom, but he's launching in a way not in accordance to the power struggles of other kingdoms, or power brokering of other kingdoms, but this is the kingdom that empowers the weak, and takes the strength that we have and channels it in other ways rather than to destroy enemies, to help enemies, apparently. Not to crush them, not to end life. Uh, again, this is an interesting thing because Jesus is launching this movement, but he's not launching a movement that says, now that we got power, here's what we use this power for, to kill our enemies. And again, I find this fascinating because this is, this is very common in our world today. In fact, this is the big issue that's happening right now in our news, for example, with Saudi Arabia and that Khashoggi um, reporter guy. Like that, that was the big thing. Right? If you guys have been following that, uh, he goes into the Saudi Arabian consulate. Uh, he's murdered, and there's this mystery. No one knows where his body's at. So the big issue right now is, is who killed him? Was it Saudi Arabia? Do we hold them accountable? And why did they kill him? Again, the suspicions, the suspicions is because he spoke bad about the Saudi Arabian government, so you speak bad about this. So in other words, if you're a false prophet speaking against the narrative of another power broker, then the way that you deal with those that speak bad about against you is you kill them. And it's, you know, again, that's, just, that's history. That's the way you know, militaristic superpowers have always acted, acted. That's the way that these empires work. It's just, it is protocol, but apparently not with Jesus. <laughs> he just says, identify him. Here's how you can identify him. If, if they speak bad things about us, just be aware. Don't go after them. Don't become like them, and be aware of the message that they preach, because the message they preach will shape you. And I think this is the big idea. You and I, uh, we are shaped by the narratives we believe. Do you know that? Like we, we, can't, we have to have a big picture narrative in our life that shapes us. Like as, and again, nobody approaches this with, from a blank slate. So if you are brought up in America, you have an American narrative 
that tells you, you know, you are powerful, you are good, you are amazing, you can do anything, don't let anybody stand in your way, uh, pull yourself up by your own bootstrap. It's a narrative, and it's, it's, I think it's, it's not a bad narrative necessarily, but it's not a complete narrative. And the gospel is also a narrative. So every narrative that is not the narrative of the gospel at some point has its deficiencies and at some point has an expiration date where it will fail us. What Jesus is saying is that be aware of any other narrative that's not the narrative of the gospel of the kingdom. Because it will mislead you. It will lead you astray from my kingdom. Now that being said, there's a lot of great narratives that we can draw from but not every narrative, and how good it is, is going to lead us into becoming like Jesus, which leads us into the very last thing I want to really focus on. Is Jesus, I'll just focus on a couple other things before I move on to the last one. Um, John chapter 15, verse 8, uh, mentioned that Jesus says, uh, keeping my commandments is what it means to be fruitful. Paul would pick up ideas like this, I think in Ephesians chapter 5, if you are familiar with terminology in the New Testament, like fruit of the Spirit, this is what Paul is addressing probably elaborating upon this idea where Paul begins to kind of nuance what, what is the fruit of the Spirit? How does that begin to play out in someone's life? Where Paul goes on to say the fruit of the Spirit is the love and then joy and peace and gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Probably Paul was just simply looking at the personality and the characteristic traits of Jesus and he's just saying this is what it looks like to be fully committed to the Spirit of God, to be obedient to God. It looks like, it looks like Jesus Later on, Paul would say, uh, it's the fruit of righteousness. So he attaches the name righteousness to the word fruit. That's connected to obeying God, which means it looks like living in right relationship with God and right relationship with other people. So these are the ways in which I think the New Testament would elaborate on it. Or another way to kind of put it is the way Eugene Peterson described it, is it's a long obedience in the same direction. I love that phrase because it it implies that you and I, we're going to fail. No matter how hard we try, no matter what your intention is, no matter how deeply rooted your desire is to be like Jesus, we have this constant struggle between our deepest desires and our strongest desires. And here's what I mean by that. Your deepest desire may be to be like Jesus. Your strongest desires may be to download porn or to get drunk or to get high or to do something ridiculous that's totally out of whack with the heart and the mind of God. That's your strongest desire. But your strongest desires are not what define you. It's Jesus that defines you. And so what Jesus is up to in our lives, as we obey him, as we trust him, as we give ourselves over to him, he takes our strongest desires and reshapes them. He remakes them so that they become aligned with our deepest desires. Does that make sense? How are we all doing? You guys all right? So this is what God's doing in our lives. This is why it's so important to live in this long obedience in the same direction. Will you fail? Of course. Will you have slip-ups? Absolutely. Will you stumble? Without a doubt. <laughs> but we're not judged upon one-up moments. It's over the period of our life. That the idea is we are saved by grace, but our works are what demonstrate our connectedness to Jesus. It's the idea of fruit. Lastly, I want to focus on this idea of being aware of this judgment that's to come. Now again, this is one of those passages, these ideas that many of us, we would just conveniently try to overlook because it's not nice, it's not fun to talk about. We prefer to talk about a lot of other things. In fact, Sermon on the Mount is actually filled with all sorts of amazing little like nuggets. Like you can read the passage where it says, don't be anxious about your life and 
don't you know that God cares about you? If he cares about the birds of the air, how much more does he care about you? So we read passages like that, and he doesn't preach himself, because you can just read the passage and be like, all right, amen, guys, have a great week. It's amazing, like, walk away, that was an amazing sermon. pastor didn't even, like, preach, he just read the scripture, because it's so good, it just preaches itself. And there's other passages like this that we're about to read that are like, ah, man, we got to remind it of this reality, and I'm not even really sure if I believe in that type of stuff. And again, this is where we are faced with our modern-day sensibilities grinding against this ancient document and the way that Jesus spells it out. We could either embrace it or we can resist it. And my invitation to you would be the invitation that the New Testament writers would write would be to do not harden your hearts, which is like this hyperlink, right, that takes you back to the story of the book of Exodus, which we're reminded of one guy, one dude, that hardened his heart. His name was Pharaoh, and things didn't go well for him. And the big idea is don't be like Pharaoh. Don't be like the guy, the person that hardened his heart, bristled against what God is up to, because we are bristling our heart, bristling against the very power and life of God himself. That actually is a redemptive, life-giving force unleashed on the universe that's intended to rescue and save and redeem, but his way. Because that, what we end up doing, if we do not receive it on that context, then if we are prone to simply take things that we love about Jesus and other things conveniently silence or edit out, or narrate out of the scenario, then what we end up doing is we end up creating our own Jesus in our own likeness, which really at the end of the day is not a real Jesus, and it's a Jesus that can't save you. My suggestion would be to let Jesus be Jesus, <laughs> let Jesus reveal himself for who he is, and as challenging as some of the things he reveals, prayerfully consider them and think about them. Don't push it away. Listen to what he says. He says, to be aware of this judgment that's to come. <clears throat> Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do all these mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Some of your translations might say iniquity. So two things I want to just focus on, we'll wrap this up, is number one, is that there is a judgment to come. Just think about that. Um, I don't know how that settles with you. For some of us, we just don't like to think about that, because we like to typically think of Jesus as being kind and nice, and the universe is moving towards eternal bliss. And, but, the, but, but again, this may be because we've turned the idea of judgment into a caricature. But the idea of a judgment is God stepping in in rendering justice, if you want to think of it that way. So, again, I referenced the Exodus. Um, Exodus, when God sets the people of Israel free from Egypt, this is the picture of God bringing judgment or justice into the very present moment of history. And it's God basically stepping in. And what you see in that story is God taking Israel, which was the deeply oppressed people group, living under the boot of a world militaristic superpower. Okay, so if you want to put it in that context. This is God saying enough is enough of injustice and oppression and destruction and ruin upon these people that have absolutely no power for themselves. This is God saying, I will step in and set the record straight. 
I mean, if we're really honest with ourselves, we long for justice. In any decent human being, we have an understanding of justice. Hopefully, if you hear a story of somebody, a child that has been you know, kidnapped and sexually trafficked, that somewhere in your heart there is a sense where you say, that is absolutely wrong, something must be done about that. That's because you have, you have a sense of justice. If your heart has ever cried out, God, help that person. God, step into the mix and do something. That is a cry for justice. It's a cry for judgment. It's a cry for God to step in and to say, enough is enough. This evil, this wicked that has been perpetrated against this innocent human being, made in my image, will be stopped once and for all. That's the idea that Jesus says, one day, there will be a day of judgment to come. And this is encapsulated in that little phrase, on that day. It's a reference to a future day, that one day, and almost every single Bible scholar and teacher, uh, preacher and theologian has ever you know, written on this stuff would all agree that this is obviously something in the future, that one day has not happened yet, that one day Jesus will come and set the record straight. So again, think about that. Secondly is Jesus actually is this judge. Again, I don't know how you reconcile that or think about that. I just want you to think about the words of Jesus. He says, and I will declare. So he's referring to a group of people that apparently come to him and like, didn't we cast out demons? And they say, Lord, Lord. You know, they use this title or language or terminology. say, you know, you are Lord. And we cast out demons. We did all these profound things in your name. And Jesus says, but I never knew you. Depart from me. This is Jesus rendering a judgment to a group of people that apparently had charismatic powers that apparently were able to do profound, miraculous deeds, or at least appeared to be so. But one thing that was missing in all of them, that Jesus basically brings it all back to this main point, which I want to land the plane on, is he says, depart from me, because I, I never knew you. And the word that he uses there for know is the Greek word gnosko. It's the word to know someone or know somebody by way of Experience. I never knew you on that experiential level. Which shows us very clearly that the heart of God in all of this is relationship with you. God's not interested in your being religious. He's not interested in how much Bible knowledge you've accumulated. He's not interested in your ability to be able to unpack doctrine as important, as great as some of these things are within their proper perspective fields. But what he is interested in is a relationship with you. He is interested in you responding to him out of obedience as if he truly is king and not just an accessory or somebody that is a casual friend or an acquaintance in your life. He wants to be king over your life. Because here's the thing. It's not because God is an ego megalomaniac. Is that what they call it? megalomaniac, someone that is all care about, is that right? You guys are leaving me up here, hanging by myself, come on. God is not like that. God recognizes that if he is not king over your life, he knows that by default we will look for other kings. You know this, right? We will look for alternatives. And God knows that those alternatives, no matter what type of storyline or narrative they offer, at some point that storyline and narrative will lead you down to dark, broken places. And he loves you too much to let you go down that path. And this is where he says, pay heed. Beware. Beware of the false voices. Beware of the 
ability to be deceived in your own self. Be aware of those other alternative narratives that will misguide, mislead you. They're malevolent. They will not lead you to flourishing or life. This is about turning back to the heart of the Father who loves you, who cares for you, who has his best, his best interest for your life to flourish, but he also recognizes our tendency to believe these false narratives, and he says, turn away from those things because they are like a cancer. And he loves us enough to separate us from that narrative or to separate the human condition from the cancer because what happens with a body that has cancer is that unless the cancer is able to be taken care of, at some point that cancer will multiply to the point where there is no human left. It's just the cancer. And you know, that's what sin's like. It just populates over and over until there's no human left, just the rebellion. It's what C.S. Lewis described. It starts off as this grumble and add that times a million years. At some point, there's no you left. There's just the grumble. That analogy is exactly what Jesus is saying. I've come to rescue you from, to save you for something so much more, to trust me, to be aware of all of these other things. And I want to finish with this passage. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. Just listen to what the book of Acts, Paul would later write. So just listen to what he has to say. In fact, why don't we all stand, and I'll just read it to you as we are getting our hearts prepped. And what I want to do, and by way of response, is I just want to create some space, just a moment for us to reflect upon the warnings of Jesus, for you to personalize them, for you to maybe ask yourself, are you somebody that has spoken on behalf of God, and maybe the words that you've spoken have been misrepresentations. Maybe they come from a good intention. Maybe they come from a good desire to maybe help other people. But the point of the matter is, it's not accurate. It's inconsistent with other ideas and concepts that Scripture has alluded to or communicated clearly on. But the point is, or maybe you're someone that has been deceived. You have bought into false narratives that have led you down pathways of deep brokenness. The invitation for wherever we're at, that we would beware, like Jesus says, to take note of deceivers, and those that could potentially be deceived, and begin to, in a new way, to trust this Jesus who spoke life. So Paul would later write, say this, he says, be careful, give attention to yourselves, and I will commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are the holy ones. This is Paul's way of basically just saying, look, at the end of the day, it's all about God's grace. God's grace over us, for us, which carries us. It's an invitation to receive the gift of life that God offers us, to partner with him, to trust him. So why don't we take a few moments and just consider, to reflect, to meditate, where are those areas in our lives that God is calling us to himself? It's going to be different for every one of us. Let's just reflect. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, just consider, and then we will, I'll pray, and then we'll respond. We'll have some rugs in the front. If you just want to get on your face, your knees before God, we have some communion in the front or in the back. Just remember that our salvation is not based upon what we do. It's based upon God's sheer grace and love given to us. We're just merely responders to his initiate, initiation of love. So let's quiet our hearts and reflect.